0: Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I am Ian Masters and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the second day of sleaze and slime from Republican Senators Lindsey Graham, Ted Cruz, Josh Hawley, Mike Lee, Tom Cotton and Marsha Blackburn in the Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson confirmation hearings. And speak with Erwin Chemerinsky, the Dean of the Law School at the University of California, Berkeley, who frequently argues cases before the highest courts, including the Supreme Court. His books include The Conservative Assault on the Constitution, The Case Against the Supreme Court, Free Speech on Campus, and Presumed Guilty, How the Supreme Court Empowered the Police and Subverted Civil Rights. We will discuss his article at the Los Angeles Times on the slimy, GOP smears against Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson. Then, as Putin creates a totally Orwellian police state in Russia, brainwashing the populace via state media, while Putin's police check the phones of citizens in the streets to see if they are getting alternative news, we will look into the Russian propaganda offensive, pushing the lie that the Ukrainians have a secret chemical and bioweapons lab financed by the Americans. This lie, which is echoed by Fox News, is a false flag President Biden fears could be the prelude to the use of chemical weapons in Ukraine by the Russians. Joining us is Robert Mackey, a senior writer at The Intercept who writes about national and international news through the prism of social media. Previously, he was a reporter and columnist for The New York Times, where he anchored the newspaper's breaking news blog, The Lead, for five years and wrote the news analysis column Open Source from 2014 to 2016. We'll discuss his latest articles at The Intercept, how the war in Ukraine is being covered up on Russian TV, and Russia is lying about evidence of bioweapons labs in Ukraine, Russian biologists say. Then finally, we will investigate the era of cheap speech, in which the American people are being fed reassuring lies on social media that are undermining democracy at home as political disinformation and delusional invective about stolen, rigged elections have become the accepted truth of over 70% of Republicans. Joining us is Richard Hassan, the Chancellor's Professor of Law and Political Science at the University of California, Irvine. He's the author of a number of books, including The Voting Wars, Plutocrats United, The Justice of Contradictions, and Election Meltdown, and in 2020, he proposed a 28th Amendment to the Constitution to defend and expand voting rights. We will discuss his latest book, Just Out, Cheap Speech, How Disinformation Poisons Our Politics and How to Cure It. And before we go to our first guest, this program is completely independent without corporate sponsors and advertising, relying entirely on your support. So we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org/slash/donate or go to our nonprofit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org, where you can keep us online and on the air on a growing number of stations for as little as five dollars a month. Help sustain us into the future so that we can continue to provide breaking news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests at home and abroad. And we've made it easier for you to donate simply by credit card at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. And joining us now is Owen Chemerinsky, who is the Dean of the Law School at the University of California, Berkeley, who frequently argues cases before the highest courts, including the Supreme Court. His books include The Conservative Assault on the Constitution, The Case Against the Supreme Court, Free Speech on Campus, and Presumed Guilty, How the Supreme Court Empowered the Police and Subverted Civil Rights. And he has an article at the Los Angeles Times on the slimy GOP smears against Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson. Welcome to Background Briefing, Erwin Chemerinsky.
1: It's always great to talk with you.
0: Well, thanks for joining us, Erwin. And Since your article appeared, the sliming has intensified and it's continued today uh, in the second hearings with Senator Lindsey Graham attacking her. And, of course, we've already seen these vicious attacks from Ted Cruz, from Josh Hawley, from Marsha Blackburn, from Tom Cotton, and they're all pounding away on this bogus idea of trying to slime her and portray her as being soft on child pornography which of course is so heinous so it's all very transparent and is there any chance that they can be shamed into stopping or are they just going to continue on this track because most of the most of the attacks on her have been about child pornography and they're still sticking to it
1: unfortunately i think it's going to continue These Republican senators are playing to their conservative base, and they're doing so in a way that sends a message that will help them politically. I think they have no shame on this. There is no indication whatsoever that Judge Jackson has ever been soft on pornography. There's no indication that there's going to be issues coming before the Supreme Court about the 1619 Project or about a book for children about racism. But that's what they're focusing on because it serves their political agenda.
0: Indeed, the RNC have put out flyers with, with her initials, KBJ, and then un- underneath that they have CRT, critical race theory. So it's obviously a campaign. What's going on, though, with the dark money aspect of it, with Leonard Leo and company putting out these ads to slime her? He's already got, what, five of the six conservatives on the court, uh, Leonard Leo? Does he want to get nine of his people on the court? Is that, I mean, at what point do the Republicans want to declare victory? Oh,
1: I don't think the Republicans will declare victory until they have nine staunch conservatives on the court. And here again, no one at this point thinks that Judge Jackson is going to be rejected for confirmation. So long as the 50 Democrats hold, she'll get confirmed. And she might even pick up Susan Collins or Lisa McCoskey. So what's going on here isn't an effort to seriously defeat Katenji Brown-Jackson. What's going on here is an effort to use her confirmation hearings to appeal to their political base.
0: Well, it seems to be also payback, isn't it, particularly with Lindsey Graham today going on about the African-American female judge from the California Supreme Court who the Democrats filibustered? And he was trying to make the case that they go after African American minority nominees just as much as the Republicans do. So, and he was also yesterday was talking about Kavanaugh, et cetera. And you recall that in the Kavanaugh hearings, it was Lindsey Graham who sort of turned it around after. Kavanaugh was under a withering attack, and then suddenly Lindsey Graham came to his defense, and it seemed to rally the Republicans, and eventually, of course, he was confirmed. So is this also about payback?
1: It's very much about payback, and this goes back to the rejection of Robert Bork in 1987, the way Clarence Thomas was questioned in their eyes in 1991, the questioning with regard to Brett Kavanaugh in 2018. And there was no doubt, if you listened to the statements yesterday, that that's how the Republicans are viewing this.
0: Well, isn't it an irony, though, that Ted Cruz, one of the nastiest of all of the, the questioners, in your article you talk about Katanji Brown-Jackson's stellar legal career and credentials. And when she was an undergraduate at Harvard, she worked with Senator Ted Cruz then on the Harvard Law Review. She also is related by marriage through her husband to Paul Ryan, the former Republican House Speaker. And she was actually in an acting class at Harvard with Matt Damon. (laughs) Um,
1: That I didn't know. The rest I had heard. Um, But you've got to remember, Ted Cruz wants to run for president in 2024. Ted Cruz has a political base that he wants to appeal to. That political base isn't going to rally behind Katenji Brown-Jackson, that political base is going to be responsive to the Ted Cruz attacks on things like critical race theory.
0: But does Ted Cruz have any idea of how unpopular he is? He's unpopular with his own colleagues and he may be popular in Texas, but I cannot imagine.
1: I think Ted Cruz cares about two things. One is being popular enough to get elected to the Senate from Texas and hopefully being popular enough to get the Republican nomination for president and then to win the presidency. Whether he's sufficiently popular for that, none of us can know at this point in
0: time. And again, I'm speaking with Owen Chemerinsky, who's the Dean of the Law School at the University of California, Berkeley, who frequently argues cases before the highest courts, including the Supreme Court. His books include The Conservative Assault on the Constitution, The Case Against the Supreme Court, Free Speech on Campus, and Presumed Guilty, How the Supreme Court Empowered the Police and Subverted Civil Rights. And he has an article at the Los Angeles Times on the slimy GOP smears against Judge Ketanji Brown Jackson. So, What's happening to the country then in terms of a really qualified, I mean, I find her just breathtakingly qualified. The way she handles herself, these attacks are, are nasty, they're withering, she doesn't take the bait, she remains serene and is sensible and confident, and what, 500 cases? She seems to remember all of them, it's extraordinary. And, of course, you know that the opposition has gone over everything with a fine-tooth comb and they're pulling all kinds of stuff out of context. But she seems to be able to parry them at every turn. So this is about an incredibly qualified person, more qualified than most uh, of the nominees that come forth for the Supreme Court, and yet she's being pilloried. So is this an example of a kind of anti-intellectualism, that's going on in the country, some revolt against qualified people?
1: Oh, I think there's some of that. I think there's some of it of just reflecting the deep political polarization in our country at this point in time. I think that some of it is also thinly veiled and not so thinly veiled racist appeals. I think a lot of this, you're soft on crime, is very much trying to play on long-standing racist tropes.
0: So the fact that her uncles, uh, one was a chief of police in Miami, another police officer in Baltimore, that just, (laughs) that has no traction. If If you're racist, obviously, all bets are off. It
1: has no traction with the Republicans who would vote against anyone who President Biden nominated. Now, whether or not for some of the more moderate Democrats, that background is helpful, we'll never know unless they tell
0: us. So in terms of the possibility of another nominee uh, coming up to the Supreme Court, as your article points out, double standard doesn't even to begin to describe the situation vis-a-vis Mitch McConnell, who's also been vicious in his attacks, and says that she has, as you say uh, in your article, a special empathy for criminals. He, of course, stymied the possibility of Merrick Garland, what, 10 months, I think, before the end of uh, Obama's tenure, or maybe almost a year. And then when the shoe was on the other foot, he rushed through Amy Coney Barrett just six weeks after Justice Ginsburg died. So... Does this come down to... I mentioned Leonard Leo, and and I, I find that extraordinary that this one man has had such outsized influence in choosing all these candidates and finding the dark money to finance them and getting five of the six conservatives on the Supreme Court. That in itself is shocking when you think about the lack of diversity on the court if they're all chosen by the same person with the same kind of mindset. So is there any possibility that the... Democrats can, I mean, have they learned a lesson here? Maybe it's too late. The only conclusion one can come to uh, is that the Republicans have taken the Supreme Court far more seriously uh, and have obviously invested enormously in their project. And uh, now they've got a six to three majority. And it's going to be hard to turn the tables, isn't it?
1: The Republicans have taken the Supreme Court much more seriously than the Democrats. Also, the accident of timing, in terms of when there's been vacancies, has been kind to the Republicans. Donald Trump picked three justices for the Supreme Court. The last three Democratic presidents, Jimmy Carter, Bill Clinton, Barack Obama, served a total of 20 years in the White House. In those combined 20 years, they picked only four justices.
0: So, is there a chance of another one, do you think? We don't know, of course, but... If after the midterms, as a lot of people predict, the Republicans will do well, Biden would be pretty much a lame duck. If he got a, a chance at a new nominee, would McConnell pull the same stunt as oh, he absolutely. did with, with the Republic
1: Yes. I think if the Republicans take the Senate in November, no Biden nominee for the Supreme Court has a chance of confirmation in the last two years of the Biden presidency. Now, I also think it's uncertain whether there'd be a vacancy. Clarence Thomas is 73, and he's the oldest of the justices. No, and Samuel Lito is 71. They're the only justices in their 70s. Um, Sotomayor, Roberts are in their late 60s. Um, but then you get to justices who are much younger than that. Um, Kavanaugh. I guess Kagan's in her early 60s, but Kavanaugh and Gorsuch are in their 50s. Barrett is 49. Judge Jackson has confirmed she's 51. So I don't expect a vacancy, but of course you never know in terms of health,
0: the unexpected can happen. So if the Republicans take the Senate in November, would that mean then that they'd also stymie Biden's nominees for the federal bench? Yeah,
1: I think that if the Republicans take the Senate, not only will no Supreme Court nominees be confirmed, but the Republicans will confirm very few court of appeals and district court judges. And that's exactly what happened in the last two years of the presidency, which is why when Trump came in, there were a huge number of open vacancies.
0: Well, because they stalled it enormously through Obama's period, right? Do you think he was sufficiently focused on getting people on the court, or is it just... I mean, was there anything else he could have done about the Merrick Garland thing? At the time, I wondered if there was something that could be done because it was so brazen.
1: No, there was nothing else that President Obama could have done because he can't force the Senate to hold hearings. He couldn't force the Senate to take a vote.
0: So we are left now with uh, the possibility at least we'll maintain a 63... At least you have three non-Leonard Leo judges on the court, right? That's...
1: And I think that Justice Jackson is confirmed because of her life experiences may influence the other justices in some cases, but none of us should be naive. It's a six to three court, and five of those justices are staunch conservatives. And in the issues where ideology matters, it's going to be six to three or at best five to four. Justice Jackson replacing Justice Breyer isn't going to change the overall ideological composition of the court.
0: But ideology aside, isn't there something more frightening going on with the conservative majority, and that is a power grab with the OSHA decision and the upcoming decision on the Clean Air Act? Aren't they taking over a lot of the powers and prerogatives of the Congress?
1: I don't know if the Congress, though they're certainly much more willing to strike down federal laws. um, I do think that the conservatives on the court want to limit the power of administrative agencies. And I think that was reflected in the invalidation of the Occupational Safety and Health Administration vaccine mandate. And it's seen in a lot of cases. And I think it's going to be one of the coming real developments in constitutional law.
0: Right. But if you can, if you have the power to determine or strike down federal regulations and precedents and and the ability to deal with global warming, that's an enormous amount of power.
1: That's right. And I think the global warming is the example of the court really limiting the power of administrative agencies. They're the, administrative, the, equal, the environmental protection agency.
0: Well, uh, thank you for joining us. I...
1: Okay. Well, it's a discouraging time for the Supreme Court, but I'm hopeful that Judge Jackson will get confirmed, notwithstanding the slime for the Republicans.
0: And I've been speaking with Owen Chemerinsky, the dean of the law school at the University of California, Berkeley, who frequently argues cases before the highest courts, including the Supreme Court. His books include The Conservative Assault on the Constitution, The Case Against the Supreme Court, Free Speech on Campus, and Presumed Guilty, How the Supreme Court Empowered the Police and Subverted Civil Rights. And he has an article of the Los Angeles Times on the slimy GOP smears against Judge Gitanji Brown-Jackson. We're going to take a brief station break and back looking into how Putin has created a totally Orwellian police state in Russia brainwashing the population via state media while Putin's police check the phones of citizens in the streets to see if they are getting alternative news. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Robert Mackey, a senior writer at The Intercept who writes about national and international news through the prism of social media. Previously he was a reporter and columnist for the New York Times where he anchored the newspaper's breaking news blog, The Lead, for five years and wrote a news analysis column open source from 2014 to 2016. And his latest articles at The Intercept are How the war in Ukraine is being covered up on Russian TV, and Russia is lying about evidence of bioweapons labs in Ukraine, Russian biologists say. Welcome to Background Briefing, Robert Mackey.
2: Good to be with you, again.
0: Well, thanks for joining us, and as your article points out, there, at considerable risk to their own safety. Ten Russian biologists, including researchers who remain in Russia, have Publicly accused the Russian government of lying about having proof that biological weapons are being developed in Ukraine labs funded by the United States. Of course, this has not stopped the avalanche of propaganda that's uh, coming from Putin, from Lavrov, from Russian media, and and some of their sympathizers here in the United States Tucker Carlson, Tulsi Gabbard. I was just looking at a, a site, Covert Action, a f- complete, full on Russian propaganda on that. So what's behind this? I mean, the the US government has been continually saying that the Russians are doing this because they're setting up a false flag, and they're accusing the US and the Ukraine of doing something that they're poised to do, which is to use chemical or biological weapons. So what do you think the odds are, Robert, of, of something happening in terms of a release of uh, chemical or biological weapons by the Russians?
2: Well, you know, it's very difficult to predict. It's, it's a dangerous business to be in. But I, I would say that, you know, if you look at the recent history uh, that is relevant here, um, not that long ago in 2018 in Syria, uh, the Russian military uh, kept warning repeatedly that the rebels were about to use uh, launch a chemical attack. Uh, and then there, there was a chemical attack outside Damascus and Douma. That was um, attributed to it was bombs that came from the air and the the Russians and Syrians controlled the airspace. Uh, And so there was a a very concerted effort by the Russian military uh, then to come up with a cover story to say that the uh, bombs had not been dropped by the Syrian government. Uh, And part of that was after they took control of the area within 24 hours, actually, uh, they brought journalists on guided tours and showed them what they said was a chemical weapons lab. Uh, And there were other elements of the story where the Russians denied that Assad's government, excuse me, had been responsible for this attack, even though, again, the bombs were dropped from the air and the rebels had no air force. Um, And so there's definitely a recent history of uh, making this warning, then something like that happening, and then producing what seems to be uh, completely invented evidence to blame it on their enemies. Uh, so I think that that is exactly what the Ukrainians uh, and their allies in the U.S. are worried about, um, and the, this sort of run-up to it, this presentation of documents uh, seized in labs in Ukraine, uh, and trying to use those as evidence that the Ukrainians are involved in some sort of biological weapons research, uh, is is worrying. Um, and as I as I explored in my article, uh, experts, uh, Russian biologists who looked at these documents. Uh, said basically that it was laughable to say that this evidence proved anything like that, that it was a relatively routine public health research, a list of of uh, biological agents that you would find there in these labs, and that and it, they in no way supported what the Russian military claimed they did and what now Putin and Lavrov, uh, this most senior diplomat in Russia, have said. Um, so it, it's it's kind of a scenario, it's, it's reminiscent in some ways uh, in a sort of... Um, you know through the looking glass way of what the u.s said in the run-up to the war in iraq that uh we knew that uh there were chemical weapons uh, weapons of mass destruction in iraq and therefore we had to go in there and then that turned out not to be true uh and the russians made a presentation at the u.n in fact uh showing the supposed evidence of biological weapons work in ukraine um and when you look at the documents, which almost no one did, uh, they just don't show anything like that. So there's a, there's a kind of trumped up evidence uh, through line here. And it seems to me that the, what happened is that the lesson that the Russian officials took from what happened in Iraq in 2003 uh, is not that if you're going to accuse an enemy of having weapons of mass destruction, that you need hard evidence. It's that if you accuse them, no one really will look at the evidence until later.
0: And again, I'm speaking with Robert Mackey, senior writer at The Intercept, who writes about national and international news through the prism of social media. Previously, he was a reporter and columnist for The New York Times, where he anchored the newspaper's breaking news blog, The Lead, for five years, and wrote the news analysis column, Open Source, from 2014 to 2016. And his latest articles at The Intercept are how the war in Ukraine is being covered up on Russian TV and Russia is lying about evidence of bioweapons labs in Ukraine, Russian biologists say. Well, when you talk about recent history in, in regard to what Russia was up to working with Assad on using chemical weapons against the rebels in Syria, if you go back further to 1975 when the U.S. and the rest of the world, including the Soviets, signed the Chemical Weapons Convention where they banned chemical and biological weapons, and, but the Russians continued an incredibly comprehensive, massive secret program all the way through the Cold War, and I spent a lot of time with Ken Alibek, who was the deputy director of this secret program, uh, head of, of Biopreparat, which was the cover for it. You know, there was an a- anthrax outbreak in uh, Svodlovsk where, of all people, the Communist Party leader was Boris Yeltsin, and he was furious that the people were dying, but that was covered up. And we still don't know whether they've really gotten rid of uh, all of their weapons, and they put them on their SS-18 missiles, including smallpox which is just, you know, it's diabolical. So there's a history of, of the Russians having a massive secret bioweapons program. And also, of course, the KGB has its toxins division that produces all these deadly stuff that they kill their dissidents with. So this is really a story about the pot calling the kettle black. Absolutely, you know,
2: I spoke with, um, <clears throat> speaking of that uh, Soviet era history, I spoke with Michael Favarov, uh, very esteemed epidemiologist, virologist, who was uh, had a long career in the Soviet Union. He was born in Moscow. Uh, and then after the Soviet Union collapsed, ended up working for the CDC for years. Um, and, and one of the things he was doing was trying to help renovate these labs in the former Soviet republics that were sort of left not only with, um, biological weapons work uh, that they needed to control and and get rid of, but just uh, no real way of storing and researching naturally occurring uh, pathogens that could be used for biological weapons production, but they actually just still had to deal with as endemic diseases like anthrax, uh, which, uh, you know, in in places like Kazakhstan, uh, just occurs naturally and has to be studied and understood to for public health reasons to prevent prevent outbreaks, and Michael Favreau told me that when he, during his career, he was uh, you know leaned on by his supervisors to try and find some uh, weapons uh, application for the work that he was doing, and he said you know there really was none, but he knows that some of his peers did that work, and obviously he talked about the you know the the weaponized anthrax that uh, created that was leaked and created that outbreak um, in nineteen seventy nine that the Soviets covered up. Uh, and his his theory was basically just like what you're saying that you know these people who are Russian military biologists who did work on weapons and are some of them are still around uh, in the Russian government, uh, when they see the u s having more sophisticated labs paying for more sophisticated labs in former Soviet states, they basically can't help but project that they must be doing what we were doing that this must be about biological research but i think the an important thing that gets lost in you know discussions of this for, for some of us here in the west and non experts is that you know the question of if we don't know it's like you know a black box if we have no idea what's happening somewhere we could think the worst but a, a way of turning that question around is to say well what is the evidence that there is some weapons work being done by ukrainians or I, even in former soviet Georgia in U.S. funded labs and the Russians continually say that they have evidence and every time you download the documents which they put online and make available to to read every time you download documents and look at them it's incredibly clear that these are not documents that in any way indicate any uh, weapons work there you know they they for instance in this recent you know these recent allegations about Ukraine they uploaded a proposal one of the things they uploaded onto and put on a big screen in the Russian military uh, uh, defense ministry headquarters and said was absolutely evidence of a sinister plot. It was, you know, ordinary public health research to make sure that there weren't outbreaks of things like bird flu and coronavirus. And when researchers in Ukraine were studying the flight of migratory ducks that start off in Ukraine and then fly to uh, Russia at a different part, time of the year and just tracking to make sure that there was no disease that could cause an outbreak in people. The Russian military showed these graphics and came up with this crazy theory that this was about weaponizing the ducks, about intentionally infecting the ducks with some sort of avian flu that would only affect ethnic Russians. I mean, there's no, not only is there no evidence for this, but when scientists look at it, it's just laughably insane. It just doesn't make any sense. And somehow, our media ecosystem now, with the right wing echoing so closely anything that makes, you know, a democratic administration look bad, it, it's unbelievably, you know, spreads all across the U.S. and and the Western, you know, alternative media, the far right media, and some of the far left media. The people just right. assume there must be something to it.
0: Well, in the last couple of minutes, let's talk about uh, some of the earlier stuff that you wrote about the very issue of propaganda in Russia, where I understand that there's a kind of a, a groundswell of manufactured grievance and patriotism. And you saw that rally that Putin did. And one of the people that spoke at of the, of the rally was a popular Russian actor whose own daughter is in the United States. And she's repudiated what he said. And he's demanding she come back to Russia. And the stuff that he said was so vile. And they, of course, kept referring to the Ukrainians as Nazis. The truth of the matter is that Putin is a fascist. It's a, he's a a dictator who, by all definitions, is a fascist. Uh, he even has his own Hitler Youth, the Nashi that uh, he has. But the long and the short of it is that is there any way, you know, Elon Musk has got this satellite system that's keeping the Internet going in Ukraine and it's actually being used by the Ukrainian military. Is there any way that there's technological ways for the U.S., to beam the real footage of what's really happening in Ukraine into Russia to per- pierce that bubble of manufactured patriotism, which apparently in Russia is a lot like what happened in the United States in the shock and awe euphoria over the U.S. invasion of Iraq, which, of course, turned out to be a disaster.
2: It's a, I mean, it's a very difficult question, Ian. You, you have... Um... Before the beginning of this uh, war, which the Russian media is not even allowed to call a war, uh, you had a, a you know relatively small but vibrant independent press. You had some independent news and radio broadcasters, uh, television and radio broadcasters, and some websites uh, that would tell the truth. Um, they've all now been shut down. Uh, they were first blocked and restricted and hassled, um, and essentially all are now. Uh, unable to report the truth fairly and accurately the one uh, nova gazetta which was which anna Polakovskaya wrote for before she was assassinated uh, whose editor won the nobel peace prize last year uh, even they uh, have continued uh, but have to they're they're staying within military censorship but not using the word war um, so the what i'm saying is it's difficult because the the situation is that people uh, of maybe 10 or 15% about of Russians it's estimated would get their news from sites like Facebook and Instagram and Twitter. Uh, And now that those sites uh, have been made almost entirely inaccessible, even Google News today was blocked in Russia. um, State television is incredibly powerful. And you already had a situation where a lot of people, that's how they got their news. And you see these remarkable stories that uh, the BBC and the Times have done that people are saying, in Ukraine who have family in Russia, uh, you know, they're telling them what's happening and their family in Russia don't believe them. They're saying to them, no, there is no war and there are Nazis running your country. And it has an incredible resonance and echo of stories that people tell here in the United States uh, of younger people trying to talk their parents and grandparents out of believing what's on Fox News. And you see, I mean, it's like the simplest thing, but you just see how powerful uh, a, a huge information bubble can be, and how difficult it is to pierce. So, you know, there is, there obviously is still some flow of information that people can use, you know, VPNs and get online and, and take certain steps to access social media. Uh, there's also Telegram, which is the sort of uh, a, a founded by a Russian who eventually moved had to move abroad a sort of uh, messaging and social media platform, somewhat like WhatsApp. Um, there's a lot of Telegram videos going around, um, but it's very difficult to say, how, how do you convince people that what you're saying uh, about such a big subject is the truth and that they're being lied to? You know, I think it's a really, it's a huge question for, for us as well. How do you deal with entirely invented fictional justifications for things? You know, you see, unfortunately, the Russians, like Trump and and the Republicans, have incredible what they call message discipline. You know, this lie, this lie, for instance, about the shelling of the maternity hospital, uh, the images of it that, that horrified the world. The Russians continue to insist that this was all staged and show photographs of two different women and say that they were an actress who played the same part. It doesn't make any sense. It's been debunked. If you look with your own eyes, you can see that it's not true, but they just keep saying it. And how do you convince people uh, simply that they're being lied to?
0: Well, yes. How do you convince people that Tucker Carlson and Fox News are lying to him? We have the same problem here. So I thank you for joining us, Robert Mackey.
2: Thanks very much, Ian. Always a pleasure.
0: And again, i mean, been speaking with Robert Mackey, who's a senior writer at The Intercept, who writes about national and international news through the prism of social media. Previously, he was a reporter and columnist for the New York Times, where he anchored the newspaper's breaking news blog, The Lead, for five years. And he wrote a news analysis column, Open Source, from 2014 to 2016. And his latest articles at The Intercept are how the war in Ukraine is being covered up on Russian TV and Russia is lying about evidence of bioweapons labs in Ukraine, Russian biologists say. We can take a brief station break and back investigating the era of cheap speech in which the American people are being fed reassuring lies on social media that are undermining democracy at home as political disinformation and delusional invective about stolen, rigged elections have become the accepted truth of over 70% of
3: Republicans. We're in deep, the prices deep, the is yeah, such a creep the lights went out the hour and dry, we blamed it on the- Shit so thick you can stir with a stick, free Teflon whitewash president seaway. Sick up being jerked around when that on your sleeve. Broadcast me a joyful noise. To the times Lord, count your blessings. We stick up being jerked up round. We all fall
0: down. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available twenty-four-seven at backgroundbriefing.org And joining us now is Richard Hassan, the Chancellor's Professor of Law and Political Science at the University of California, Irvine. He's a nationally recognized expert on election law and campaign finance regulation and is the co-author of the leading casebook on election law. He served as founding co-editor of the quarterly peer-reviewed publication Election Law Journal. And he's the author of a number of books, including The Voting Wars, Plutocrats United, The Justice of Contradictions, and Election Meltdown. And in 2020, he proposed a 28th Amendment to the Constitution to defend and expand voting rights. And his latest book just out is Cheap Speech, How Disinformation Poisons Our Politics and How to Cure It. Welcome to Background Briefing, Richard Hassan.
4: Good to be back with you.
0: Well, thanks for joining us and uh, your book argues that these false claims about the fairness and integrity of the American election system pose a huge risk to American democracy. And they're hand in glove with massive voter suppression going on across the country at various Republican-controlled legislatures, many in key swing states. So this, I just find it so extraordinary, Rick, that Donald Trump lost this election He's psychologically incapable of accepting defeat. Maybe you can blame his father for brutalizing him about you can't be a loser. But because this one man can't face the fact that he lost, he's invented this entire scenario that he won. But the amazing thing is that it has spread into the Republican Party and into, what, 40% of the American people? It's hard to know exactly how many At least something like 70 to 80 percent of Republicans believe in the stop the steal lie. So how did this metastasize? What does it say about us as a country and as a people who are so, are we any better than the Russian people now being brainwashed with Putin's lies about Ukraine?
4: Well, I certainly think we're much better off than uh, the uh, availability of information uh, that is, uh, coming out in Russia today, but that's a pretty low bar. What I argue in cheap speech is that the uh, if we had the same polarized politics of today, but we were living with the technology of the 1950s, it's much less likely that we would have had millions of people believe the false claims that the 2020 election was stolen, uh, or that we would have had the insurrection at the Capitol. Unlike the situation in the past, where... Uh, our information was filtered through reliable intermediaries like, um, you know, think of Walter Cronkite or your local newspaper. Today, um, it is very easy for false information and misleading information to spread. It's very cheap to produce that. It's very expensive to produce good information. It costs a lot for investigative journalism and, and for deep uh, dives into Policy issues and electoral issues and the economic model that supported local news has collapsed, leaving um, news deserts in some places, uh, leaving uh, an opportunity for fake news to spread. And so uh, it is just much easier today for false information to take hold when someone who is a demagogue like Donald Trump is trying to promote it for political reasons and when... Uh, some Trump supporters promoted for financial reasons. Some people have gotten very rich off the st- stop the steal lie.
0: So, the term that was coined, that, he, that is the title of your new book, uh, Richard Hassan, Cheap Speech, uh, that was coined by Eugene Volk, a First Amendment scholar at UCLA. Uh, he coined the term back in 1995 to refer to this new era of communications technology that I guess at the time when there was sort of euphoria, certainly it, it seems to be associated with the uh, kind of techno-utopianism of what the Internet would bring, but we've now experienced the dark side of the Internet, haven't we?
4: Sure, and so the term cheap speech comes from a Law Review article that Professor Eugene Volokh of UCLA wrote in the mid-'90s, and, and as you say, he was very optimistic about what it would mean for Democracy to lose these intermediaries, and for us to move from a trickle of information to a tidal wave of information. Anyone can put up anything at any time and 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 get the word out. Um, he thought this would be great, but uh, I, I use cheap speech not just in the sense of speech now being inexpensive to disseminate, but also that lower valued speech, cheap speech in in that sense is easier to produce and has a means of gaining a foothold in a way that it didn't before. And so I think we have to think about how we protect democracy and our voters in this information age where we have a commitment both to free and fair elections and to the first amendment ideals of free expression. So, you know, you can't just pass a law and say don't lie about the election being stolen and expect that we could have a A government bureaucrat fairly implement that. So it becomes a very difficult legal and social issue to think about how you deal with this massive uh, rise in false uh, and vitriolic speech that undermines our democracy. Uh, You don't want something where the cure is going to be worse than the disease, but you do need to do something so that voters can continue to have access to reliable information to make sensible voting decisions.
0: Doesn't it go beyond voting, Richard Hassan, in the sense that uh, we now live in post-truth America where there is no sort of consensus about what is real is what is true. People do their reality shopping. Liberals uh, watch MSNBC. Conservatives, Fox. Christians, Christian Broadcasting. How do you bring about a national consensus about what is true and what is real?
4: So I think the... the- social science shows that there's somewhat less siloing or echo chamber effect than um, is commonly thought. Um, so while it's true that you, the conservatives flock to Fox and, and liberals flock to MSNBC or, or whatever, um, most people are getting information from a variety of sources. There's uh, maybe tw- 25 to 30% of the population that uh, seems to be taken in uh, by misinformation and you know I don't know that there's going to be any change legal or social that's going to get to those people the concern is the remainder of those in the center and to make sure that they remain in within the world of reality and so you know how can you bolster accurate information so just to make this a little more tangible uh, one thing that I'm worried about is the rise of deep fakes. These are uh, manipulated audios and uh, videos that can be used to make it appear as though a politician or someone else is, is doing something scandalous, uh, you know, uh, saying a racial epithet in, in some kind of sexually compromised position or, or having a kind of a health uh, crisis. And this you know, has the potential to swing elections, uh, you know, if, if it's done well enough. And so one of the things I argue for is that uh, when such manipulated media is shared on social media or on a broadcast television or cable television, it would have to be labeled as altered, right? So that would not deprive voters of the ability to see the video, uh, but it would let voters know that the information they're seeing is altered or if someone poses as a black activist, as Russian government agents did in 2016 and say, you know, don't vote for Hillary Clinton. She hasn't done enough for the black community uh, that voters would be able to have information about whether or not <laughs> that was, this was really coming from other African-American voters or was in fact coming from a foreign power. So I want to deal with some of these problems by providing voters with more information so that they can make better choices. And that's a way of, not censoring speech, which would potentially violate the First Amendment, but giving voters better context.
0: And again, I'm speaking with Richard Hassan, the Chancellor's Professor of Law and Political Science at the University of California, Irvine. He's a nationally recognized expert in election law and campaign finance regulation and is the co-author of the leading casebook on election law, and he served as a founding co-editor of the quarterly peer-reviewed publication Election Law Journal. And he's the author of a number of books, including The Voting Wars, Plutocrats United, The Justice of Contradictions, and Election Meltdown. And in 2020, he proposed a 28th Amendment to the Constitution to defend and expand voting rights. And his latest book just out is Cheap Speech, How Disinformation Poisons Our Politics and How to Cure It. So what kind of mechanism, though, would you have? You know, what kind of referees or umpires would there be to brand these deep fakes and put a a label on them. I mean, the conservatives are furious with, and particularly Trump is, uh, with Facebook or Meta for banning him, and they've been getting a lot of flack for it. But, you know, clearly uh, these platforms, they don't allow pornography, for example. So they seem to have mechanisms. Are you satisfied with the mechanisms they have, or is there some kind of national standard that could be accompanied by these new laws?
4: Right. So I think, first of all, we have to recognize that these companies are private actors, just like um, KPFK or uh, Fox can decide what content to include or exclude. These platforms have that same right. And so they uh, can decide, you know, do you want to have Donald Trump on your platform or not? And you may remember that In the aftermath of the January 6th insurrection, uh, he was deplatformed from both Facebook and Twitter, a decision I think took too long for them to make, but was the right decision. And Facebook is going to have to go back. uh, And uh, the the deplatforming of Trump expires on January 7th, 2023, unless it's extended. So there's a big decision coming there. Uh, So a lot of this is going to be done through pressure from consumers on the platforms to do the right thing. In terms of laws, and I think you raise a really important point about who's going to make the decisions the only kind of laws i think that are consistent with our commitment to free speech and to the first amendment that could either require labeling or of uh, deep fakes or something like that or uh, in a very narrow context limit uh, speech and this i would only apply to either foreign spending or to speech that lies about when, where, how people vote, saying Democrats vote on Tuesdays, or Republicans vote on Wednesdays, or, or to take a real case, a Trump supporter in 2016 who targeted messages at African Americans that say uh, that said that uh, uh, voters could vote by text or by social media hashtag. I think you can have laws It wouldn't require government discretion. We all know what day Election Day is. It's an empirically verifiable fact. If someone lies about when Election Day is or that you can vote by text, you can enforce that. You have a government uh, prosecutor enforce that. Uh, Similarly, the Federal Election Commission already enforces laws that require disclosure of certain campaign finance information. That could easily be extended to any time a video is altered in a particular technical way to make it appear as though someone is saying or doing something that they haven't said or done uh, that would be an empirically verifiable fact, and a failure to label that when it's posted on media or social media could subject someone to a fine. So I do think that these kinds of laws can be enforced without raising the specter of, uh, of, of um, you know, a government censor with discretion. Uh, so there, there are ways to draw lines. Uh, I don't know that the Supreme Court would agree with exactly where I draw the lines, and in fact... Justice Clarence Thomas, who has um, in the past been very opposed to any kind of regulation of speech in the political sphere, he he doesn't even support campaign finance disclosure laws under the First Amendment, thinks they're unconstitutional, recently wrote a gratuitous uh, um, concurring opinion in a case where he suggested that it would be constitutional to force um, companies like Meta or Twitter to carry the speech of a politician like Donald Trump, even if they lie about elections, even if they uh, promote violence. And so I think we're moving into a very dangerous space where the First Amendment could be used not simply to deregulate some politics, but to require that certain uh, private speakers carry uh, speech that is dangerous.
0: Well, both uh, Clarence Thomas and Neil Gorsuch on the Supreme Court have signaled that they want to overturn the libel laws which donald trump wants to do and make them all like the british libel laws and you brought up earlier how matter and uh, facebook and public radio are subject to the rules well they're, they're very different for any legitimate publisher whether it's the los angeles times public radio msnbc fox news cbs nbc abc they're all subject to Basically, journalistic standards uh, where you, because of the New York Times versus Solomon decision, which, again, these conservatives on the Supreme Court want to overturn, you have the absence of malice. So there are libel laws that that's why you have facts checkers. That's why you can't say in the media what you think as a, you know, you can only say what you can prove, whereas on the Internet and on Facebook, you can say anything.
4: Well, so let's let's differentiate. It, it, there is a federal law, of, um, Section 230 of uh, the Communications Decency Act, which says that we're not going to treat uh, Facebook or Twitter as a publisher uh, who could be sued for defamation. So if I write something defamatory in an op-ed and it gets published in the New York Times, not only could I be sued, but the Times could be sued. And, and so if I post that on Twitter, I can still be sued. Uh, it's just that Twitter can't be sued. And so that's one aspect in which, um, you know, current law treats these social media companies more generously. And I, I only dip a toe into the debate over that question. But I do think that more broadly, um, whether Section 230 says it or not, the social media companies are publishers. The, as you said earlier in the interview, they decide to exclude pornography and hate speech. They decide what um, post to promote or demote or hide. These decisions are publish, publishing decisions, whether they're considered publishers or not. And because they are private entities, I don't think that the government can tell them you must carry the speech of a particular politician. Uh, but yet that is the direction in which I think at least one justice on the Supreme Court is willing to let states like Florida, which already passed one of these laws and it's on hold because it's been challenged in court, that this is a direction where things might end up going.
0: Well, we also had, uh, in terms of money in politics, and uh, obviously that's a huge issue along with lies that we're discussing here and the whole edifice of lies that's created the Stop the Steal movement, which is now pretty much accepted by the Donald Trump's Republican Party, which he clearly controls, and he's, for all intents and purposes, running for a second term in 2024 so there's a huge issue here about uh, what's going to happen with all of these voting restriction laws that will come into play in in November in this election and then will obviously impact the 2024 election. But the other thing that's huge along with our discussion, uh, Richard Hassan, is, of course, is, uh campaign finance. And last year, Americans for Prosperity Foundation versus Bonta, the case before the Supreme Court, it signaled, as you've written, that they're going to apply a much closer scrutiny to disclosure laws than they have in the past. So in other words, after Citizens United, there was an attempt to pass the Disclose Act, which the Republicans uh, shut down. But now the Supreme Court seems to be taking it even further, away from disclosure, which is what even Scalia, he, what, he was in favour of disclosure, was he not? So what's happened to the Supreme Court in terms of the right-wing faction. They've moved further to the right than Scalia?
4: Well, it's interesting because uh, on the one hand, uh, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, uh, and and as you uh, also mentioned, uh, you've got some of the justices that believe that it should be easier to sue under libel laws, uh, get rid of the actual malice standard, which would chill journalistic investigations into politicians. Uh, And Justice Thomas has suggested that Social media companies that are private companies could be forced to carry the speech of politicians they don't want to. But on the other hand, campaign finance disclosure laws, um, like the kinds I described, where um, spending on advertising on the Internet would have to be fully disclosed as it is today if that advertisement appears on radio or television, Uh, also laws that would require uh, disclosing that that, um, videos are altered, Uh, there's a real question as to whether or not those would be upheld. Uh, In the past, uh, justices like Justice Scalia joined with more liberal justices like Justice Ginsburg in believing that disclosure was a good way of helping voters make decisions about what speech they should believe and what they shouldn't. Uh, Scalia famously said that uh, it doesn't represent the home of the brave to have Anonymous speech, anonymous hit pieces against politicians—people should stand behind the speech that they're willing to make. But Justice Thomas has always taken a contrary position, believing much more in anonymity of uh, speech. Uh, and it does appear from the Supreme Court's decision last summer in Americans for Prosperity Foundation versus Bonta that they're willing to be much more skeptical of disclosure laws in the past, and I think part than they have been in the past. And I think part of that has to do with the fact that um, the conservatives on the court like Justice Alito, Justice Thomas, Justice Kavanaugh feel like conservatives are under siege and they should be allowed to speak without uh, any consequences. And th- this is really, um, you know, kind of analogizing the Koch brothers to those who supported the NAACP in Alabama in the 1950s and who faced cross burnings and violence against them. And it really is not that way. There are not those kinds of Threats of violence uh, the way we had before, and when you can show that there's a threat of violence, the Supreme Court has long said that when there are real threats, then you can get an as applied exemption from disclosure laws. What these justices are signaling is not you know uh, is not creating exceptions, but instead saying generally that these laws potentially are not constitutional and and that 's going to make it harder for voters to make accurate decisions and and allow for misinformation and disinformation to flow even further.
0: And of course, Americans for Prosperity Foundation is controlled by the Koch brothers or the Koch brother now. They're not exactly short of a a few dollars. They're among the richest and most powerful people in this country, and they're actively involved in politics. So just in the last minute, Rick, can you just tell us a little about uh, what's in your proposal for a 28th amendment to the Constitution?
4: well, so uh, so this is a, a, a beyond the scope of cheap speech, but I do believe that um, we need an affirmative right to vote in the United States Constitution. Uh, right now, there's only negative protections for voting in the Constitution. If a state grants voting rights, it can't discriminate on the basis of race or gender or age over the age of 18, etc. But I think we need an affirmative right to vote. There's not even a right to vote for president, and state legislatures could decide in future elections that the legislatures themselves will choose the presidential electors uh, for that state. And uh, I think many Americans would be shocked to learn that they do not have the right to vote for United States president. Um, That's something I think that should be in our Constitution.
0: Well, Richard I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Richard Hassett, who's a Chancellor's Professor of Law and Political Science at the University of California, Irvine. He's a nationally recognized expert in election law and campaign finance regulation and the co-author of a leading casebook on election law. He served as a founding co-editor of the quarterly peer-reviewed publication, Election Law Journal and is the author of a number of books, including The Voting Wars, Plutocrats United, The Justice of Contradictions, and Election Meltdown. And in 2020, he proposed a 28th Amendment to the Constitution to defend and expand voting rights. And his latest book just out is Cheap Speech, How Disinformation Poisons Our Politics and How to Cure It. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The
3: guy that lived next door Took the kids to the park and disappeared by half past-